Hello and welcome to The Culture Bar. I'm Henry Southern and today we'll be discussing disability and access in the arts. To explore this important topic, I am delighted that we have three wonderful expert panellists. First up, Kimberly Harvey, Director of the Youth Dance Programme at Caduco Dance Company. Next, Kira Grunenberg, arts professional, PR strategist and music journalist based in New York. And last but by no means least, Dougie Scarf, CEO of the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra. Welcome everyone. Hi. Hello, nice to see you or hear you. <laughs> Likewise, thank you so much for joining us. And this is a topic which we at the Culture Bar have been wanting to explore for some time now. And personally, I feel that it's often neglected when we as artists, administrators, institutions think about equality, diversity and inclusion. So my first question, I'm going to come to you first, Kimberly. Um, do you think that's a fair statement? Is that the case? Is it, is it neglected? And, and also, the second question to that, what does inclusivity and inclusive practice mean to you? Oh, a meaty one to start with. <laughs> so, um, I guess uh, in, in my world, uh, within working within Kanduko and the dance sector, um, I'm, I'm really aware of, like, it's my world and, and sort of working with considering disability and difference is part of my world and I'm really aware of how that sort of shapes what I see um, and also the the networks that we that we work within um, but I it is it is a, a permanent job if you like sort of that the advocacy and the and the being aware of I guess that your the importance of visibility um, I think for me personally and 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 also speaking uh, on behalf of Kanduko I think uh, inclusivity is about uh, embracing difference and really seeing the true value of that and and in our context at Kanduko Dance Company it's it's uh, I, I guess you could say our area of specialism if you like is is disability but obviously inclusion can extend uh, in many different directions. Um, so yeah. Thank you. And thanks for tackling that meaty question with the first up. Dougie, I'm gonna to come to you next before we skip over the pond to, to Kira. Do you, do you resonate with some of those thoughts? Yeah, isn't there that, I can't remember who made that quote, that quote about equality is being invited to the party, inclusivity is being invited to dance. It's, uh, you know, for us, but BSO, in a way, it's, it was quite a straightforward question. Our mission is to bring music into people's lives. And because we have a particular remit, which covers 10,000 square miles of the southwest of England, which is like mass, massive area. And, it, and it's meant over the years, we are very connected and um, we see our communities in, in a lot of detail. And I think about it's really about 10 years ago, we just became aware that there were barriers that were stopping people being part of what we do. And, you know, I, I think we're probably sure we'll talk about leadership at some point, but, you know, myself and my colleagues, we took it, the, actually our role was to, uh, to address that. And of course, as soon as you open yourself up to realizing that you don't know stuff and that you're probably in wrong in how you've done things over the years and 
without even realizing it made you know given lack of opportunity or, or stopped opportunity for people you you see you begin to see the responsibility on to do something about it and um so for us really inclusivity is about delivering our mission our mission is to enable opportunity to participate to be professional to be an amateur musician to enjoy music to experience music to participate in music to enable music to be part of your life from Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra um and uh, and really that has changed our whole view and you know for us it's also we've had a really a company-wide change program you know right across all departments feeling about it so actually for us it's been one of the most enriching things in my whole life to, to realize just what a difference it is possible is possible to make um and that's why we bang on about it all the time wow that's really wonderful to hear that it's well it sounds like it's not just your professional life it's your no, personally, you're very passionate about it. And I, I was really inspired reading that your mantra, if you would call it a mantra, of inclusion is not a project. When we got the um, RPS award for impact, um, I said that in my thing, because for us, inclusion is not a project. And I think it really just sum it up. And <laughs> I saw everyone write it down on a piece of paper. Um, so it is, yeah, it's, it's an easy, it's an easy thing. It's not something to be given to a particular department, you know, participant, off you go and source inclusivity for us. No, it's about the world. It's about how you view your, well, in my case, my company, what, you know, what, what we do. Um, and, you know, orchestras aren't very accessible in, in generally. And, um, you know, we've, we've had to, you know, we've had to accept that. It's, you know, it wasn't good enough what we were doing. We've still got a lot to learn, but, you know, we've come an enormously long way and it's been massively enriching for everyone. Absolutely. Kira, how about you? Um, both personal experiences, but also with the institutions you've been involved with in the US and elsewhere, how, how, have, you, what it's, how have you found it and what does, as I say, inclusion mean to you? So um, I, I appreciate you coming to me uh, last because it's given me a <laughs> couple extra minutes just to to process and and think about this because um, you know like we've been saying this is definitely a, a meaty and loaded question. Uh, certainly, from my own personal experience um, as somebody who has sort of you know you know paved their own way and, and worked as a freelancer, independent contractor for for much of my career, um, it's been a lot about you know, I mean, you ask any freelancer, uh, just the nature of the work means, you know, independent um, advocacy just for your work to say nothing of if there are any barriers. And, uh, um, you know, I think kind of going off of, uh, Doug, what you said about, uh, you know, that inclusivity is not a project. When I've spoken with, you know, over various interviews over years with different companies, startups, especially startups, because, you know, those are companies kind of in their first, um, you know, their first steps and kind of defining who they are, uh, you know, I've tried to breach the topic of, you know, how are you going to uh, connect with the broad experiences of the world and, and people's different lived experiences. And a lot of times I have found that the most well-intentioned people uh, in the arts world, um, you know, will say that they have every intention and, and it's it's crucial and important, but a lot of times it's it's sort of met with, I don't know where to start or I haven't encountered it. So, 
you know, it being, you know, different scenarios or, or needing to change how maybe they were planning on doing things. And so it's kind of a, I'm going to be aware of this and hopefully if it ever presents itself, I'll deal with it the right way. But in, in some ways, I think there's almost a little bit of an unfortunate feedback loop where there's sort of an established, you know, the established norm in a lot of places because a lot of companies see inclusivity and diversity as a product is, oh, we're deviating from how things have always been. And so because that's kind of the vantage point people are coming from, they're not used to seeing um, how to sort of change protocols and therefore they're saying, well, I'll change it when it becomes different, but it won't become different until I change things. And so you kind of have this, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg sort of dynamic. But uh, generally in, in the last few years, especially, I think overall there's a lot more discourse online and in the real world uh, and people just being more comfortable talking about, uh, you know, accommodations and about different lived experiences and about uh, the kinds of shortcomings and uh, maybe challenges and pitfalls that organizations might not be meeting, whether it's, uh, you know, deliberately or, or unintentionally. And uh, because, um, just because we're talking about it more, I think it's made that aspect of awareness kind of just become where people are coming from now. So they don't have to like wait around for a specific person with let's say a specific disability to apply for a job in order for them to say, oh, I should start changing my mindset and start thinking about how I view the world and how my, you know, how my company or how my startup uh, will interact with those things before they start making changes. Well, thank you for sharing those experiences, Kira. And um, there's been nodding along in this virtual room that we're in here. I mean, if you don't mind, Dougie, I'm going to come to you next, just because I'd imagine what the experiences you were describing from former Symphony Orchestra, there was inst institutional change and change of mindsets and picking up from Kira saying, deviating from the norm, both within your organization, but also within the sector more broadly. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think I think there is. And, and for us, it was always about you make small steps. Um, you know, one of the inspirations for for right back at the start of this journey was, um, you know, when we do our schools concerts to 1500 primary school children at a time and those who aren't able bodied are, are at the back in the wheelchairs because of cause stairs in the hall. And you see that um, Traditionally, you ask the, the everyone stand up, sing a song. As soon as you ask everyone stand up, your people are on a, or a, or on a different perspective than, than others. And then when you notice that um, actually, of course, their their way of, of of expressing the song is probably a maxon signing rather than traditional singing or a combination of the two. Well, you know, over over a period of a, a year or so, the next time um, everyone sat down. And every person in the hall did the Macaton signing because actually that was a way of everyone communicating together all in the same language. I have never seen a smile as big on a young person's face when they see 1500 people doing the same communication the same. Then you realize that actually the whole thing about the social model of disability, which I still find it extraordinary that you know, so many major organizations haven't adopted that as a core value. As soon as you adopt the social model of disability, which has been around for 60 years, 
um, it makes you view your decision making in a different way. What was quite interesting for us, I'm just picking on something that, that Kira said, I think one of the other resonances is that actually the public are already there. A lot of pub, a lot of public resonate with the sort of inclusivity that we're all aspiring to achieve. Um, and I, I think just to follow on from Kira's point about when do you do, when do you make that change? One of the things that was interesting for us that actually we made the change for all the reasons that we made it in the Change Makers Program with James Rose and and Bissarazan. And actually, we what we saw was by doing that and by talking about that and by it becoming known, we were having a more diverse group of people applying for work with us. We weren't changing our processes in that way, but people would say, well, actually, clearly, BSO is an organization, it's it's you know that will embrace me as as me. Um, and so I think actually, you know, I, I demand, I push people to make the change because actually it's only by making change and by seeing to make change change and, and having those things in place and then, then people will change. Our um, disabled audience numbers in the first year after Changemakers went up by 19%. Fantastic. So it's a measurable impact. It's a measure of the impact. And we, you know, and that's, their decision to come to us you know mm. people want mm. to come to us and i think that's why we are so you know so passionate about wanting people to change before like you say before you get that application and think oh, i need to do something about it that's too that's too late for me yes and it's interesting you're saying how the audience is ready i think you told me the fact about 23 percent of the working population in the uk is disabled and you know it's a huge proportion of society which is perhaps as i said before perhaps neglected but actually reflecting that on the stage or within our um, arts institutions and that civil responsibility that they have is, is, is vital. Do you, uh, uh, Kimberly, I'm going to come to you next with your work in Kanduka as well and just related to this, I, we've spoken before about how um, people who are disabled are perhaps seen as less rather than a differently functioning body and actually being able to celebrate the unique and powerful attributes that um, disabled people have is not often seen actually in Dougie's cases is demonstrated when there is that inclusive approach actually it's something wonderful and to be celebrated as I say. It is and and I think um from from my and Kanduko's perspective with working with disabled and non-disabled dancers together um the, it, it just broadens the, the palette of possibility so much um and and then by extension, uh, there's questions around. Uh, it allows us to challenge perceptions of of dance, of who can dance, of what dance is. I think which is a constant uh, a constant um, source of discussion for contemporary dance for sure. Anyway, I think and I think what's really interesting for Kanduka is. Uh, so we're now in our 30th year and I and I think um Dougie your point about audiences I think I think there is a really interesting shift from maybe where Kanjuka was 30 years ago and actually the role they played then it was actually oh my gosh there are disabled people on stage to to now we absolutely we have uh, people that know about Kanduko that are followers of Kanduko that 
and of course there'll always be new audiences and new people we want to reach uh, and engage with but uh, the idea that now there is also the exciting possibility of of you know there are a lot of people that already know that this is this is happening that that there is um uh disabled people working in the sector and and almost in how can we uh uh celebrate and evolve and continue evolving right because i think that's that's also what's important. It's not to go, okay, so we've done it. You know, the dance sector or the or the art sector is sorted. It's like, how can we keep challenging perceptions? And and because I think there's always more work to be done. Um, and I and I I think yeah, I think the and and what I I I I really enjoy being able to engage both with those who are very used to working in the sector and that's sort of the, what they know and, and it's, you know, and you can get really into the detail and, and sort of keep pushing, but then also the, the importance of also going back to those foundation conversations of actually for those people that it will be a first time or a first experience. And yeah, there are times when you are, um, for want of a better expression, repeating yourself or or you know as a as a disabled artist myself where you are saying the same thing or hearing the same thing but that's also difficult at times perhaps it's also part of the work if you're if you're in if you're in the sector if you're if you're if you're doing that well then it and then it is part of what we do um but that's sort of my own personal perspective on it but yeah yeah and it's really interesting to hear what you're saying about keeping that momentum keep challenging those perceptions and i would imagine an important part of that is also creating a body of work for mm. disabled artists which you know we've got this huge canon of work be it in dance or or the orchestral sector or whatever other traditions um and i know commissioning is an important part of what you guys do so do you think actually the commissioning programming must surely play a very crucial part in this momentum um, yeah, I think there's something really, um, really exciting in the role that Kanduka has as a as a repertory company. Because, as you say, we do we do commission choreographers, and over the years, I remember hearing choreographers saying, you know, and up until this point, I haven't worked with disabled uh, disabled dancers, let alone a company of disabled and non-disabled dancers. So actually, for them, actually, potentially, there's a there's a shift that happens for them while they're working with us, um, uh, or, or you know, and 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 the dancers are, and very much part of the process. It's you know, the dancers are. Tanduko are, are a company where it's you know, it's not just the choreographer coming in going, okay, we do this, we do this, we do this, we're done. Uh, it's very much working with the with the dancers to, to explore, to find out, to find what works for everybody and it, it's more collaborative in that sense um, because there has to be a getting to know process with the dancers um, uh, and, I, and I think and you know Kendika work with choreographers from from all over the world so I and and it, and it also comes from a very genuine place of who is exciting the artistic 
directors at the time. So, which I also love is that it, it also comes from an artistic perspective. So that's still the root of everything, um, but it's the inclusivity and that approach is, is woven into the artistic drive of the company. Um, yeah. I'd imagine, Dougie, that's the same for BSO Sounds, right? I mean, commissioning bespoke works for that ensemble, and you guys have had extraordinary success with performances of the BBC Proms and wherever it might be. Is that, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I mean, commissioning is 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 absolutely key, um, as as Kimberly was saying. Obviously, there's a there's a particular um, interest and challenge and focus for us um, because adaptive instruments, um, so for example, the instruments or um, headspace, you know, they don't, you know, Brahms didn't write for those. Um, so, you know, there's a whole question about how do you make an inclusive orchestra if you can't include those instruments? And I think that's sort of, that's phase 1A um, phase, you know, the, the, what we're looking at the moment is to ensure that, you know, there is really really fine music from for a range of composers written for inclusive ensembles that include these instruments that don't uh, um, take part in the traditional canon. Um, when Bissar Razan played at the proms, actually we did write a little instrument into the Holst Planets um, and Shostakovich Festival, which I think was great. Um, uh, but you know, there's probably a challenge doing that in some other concert environments. Um, so I think that's interesting. And I think it's also, also picking up on Kimberly's point, for me, I'm, I'm wanting to commission a range of composers who've not composed for, for adaptive instruments as well, because it's only by having more people who even understand how to write for an instrument um, that they, they will then go, well, actually, when I write my, my next work for whichever orchestra, I want to include an, ins an instrument because it's a great instrument and I want it in my piece. You know, um, before 20th century composers, not lots of composers wrote for Kratals or different types of Indian bowls or stuff, but actually they do now, and it's 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 very common. So uh, we're playing one later on today with both those instruments in. So you know what I would like to see is that when mainstream in inverted commas composer writes at a work look further on, they think well actually what I want is the color of an X adaptive instrument. Which so for us more composers having the time to work with us and other inclusive ensembles will then over time start to change start to change the canon and actually broaden people the audiences as well as performers and managers and administrators minds yeah i suppose it's it's almost i don't know if it's the right word normalizing it and and, and in turn influencing the composers with their work beyond bso resound exactly no, exactly exactly yeah exactly now i'm hearing all of this and Kira, I'm coming to you next. Thank you for your patience. Um, I'm feeling very proud of the UK sector with the work that Kimberly and Dougie are doing. And I, I don't, and this is not to shame or anything, but I don't know, do you find, uh, and of course, I say all this, there's still, as Dougie said, still more work to be done, but do, do you find in the, in the US um, there are similar approaches in terms of in, incorporating or adapting performance practices to? to embrace disabled artists? Are there any sort of schemes which are, or, or activities you think are particularly successful in this regard? Uh, I do. There are definitely, you know, um, broader organizations, nonprofits, um, larger or, um, endeavors that I think have become more inclusivity minded. Um, 
one of the first ones that comes to mind, uh, one that I have quite a few um, personal experiences and connections with is uh, an organization that's based in New York um, in the city uh, called the Philemon M. D'Agostino Greenberg Music School. And uh, this school is focused on uh, teaching and has several performance ensembles. Uh, and it's about helping um, people of varying ages and skill levels to learn to read music, to perform together, uh, and to help bring visibility to the challenges of doing both those things for people with vision loss. So um, I have uh, both been a student there uh, and also worked with people who are on staff and written about uh, several of the events that they've held over the years. Um, you know, I think uh, at the end of this month, they're supposed to be doing a performathon uh, for a fundraising event. And it's this whole massive undertaking of, I think, 24 hours of constant performance. And uh, the, the school gets really, you know, hyped up and motivated about it. And it's a, it's a really, great community uh both within the organization but just the spirit of you know kind of um coming around the the creative process of of making music and not being concerned about you know are we doing it the traditional way or or the the you know kind of old-fashioned way of doing things in terms of composing or reading or how people perform and just loving music for the sake of loving the art form so uh, that's definitely one that I know kind of from a first degree basis uh, that has been doing work for, I think the school's been around for over a hundred years now. Wow. Um, so, uh, but kind of in a broader sense, um, you know, to go from that, which I, which I will sing the praises of for, you know, a long time, uh, to kind of be a little bit more honest and say from my own personal perspective as a single individual in this broad landscape and in this very diverse country. I do maybe from my experience as a, as a music journalist and somebody that writes kind of about commercial bands and that sort of uh, less, you know, fine arts space and traditional arts space. I do think there are a couple of ways that maybe um, the community could become a little less hesitant. There are a lot of discussions I find with, um, you know, peers that do the same kind of writing work I do, other colleagues uh, of where we have encountered things like going to live music, going to different performance spaces, whether it be a formal concert hall with, with regular seating or a general admission show uh, of, you know, a traditional rock band. Uh, things like, um, you know, safety and, uh, you know, physical accessibility and uh, ease of mobility and things like that, that don't necessarily tie into the performative aspect of the arts, but are every bit as important because if you make art and then nobody is able to come see it, did it actually happen? <laughs> it's kind of like that whole, did it, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, uh, does it make a sound? But um, that is something, again, that I have definitely experienced firsthand, and it's not something that makes me happy as someone that both loves music and, you know, appreciates after I've paid for a ticket to see, um, 
some live entertainment that should my experience be lessened because there is a factor of like uh, a shortcoming with accessibility or some other um, insufficiency with the experience, uh, you know, that that I think needs to be addressed and it needs to be something that when people bring it up uh, is taken seriously and given, uh, you know, a measure of weight that is as important as who gets put on a bill uh, you know, what gets presented at a festival, who gets, uh, you know, the, the headlining performance slot and all those other typical questions that people think about when it comes to something like live, the live music sector. Well, thank you again for sharing those experiences. And I think you also shared it very diplomatically, um, describing, uh, I think you used the word hesitation from some uh, cultural bodies to, to necessarily consider how they improve their accessibility. And I think I'm just going to open this up now because maybe this is naive on my part, but I don't, I, I think there's, there is goodwill and intention, but delivery might not be, well, it is not simply in many cases um, really uh, coming up to scratch when it comes to accessibility. And lots of arts and cultural bodies have EDI policies, which are again, very well meaning, but it's actually, how do we move that good intention to meaningful action and putting it into practice. And I'm going to open it up. Anybody want to dive in on that? I can give it a shot. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think it's I think it's really uh, over the uh, so over I hate to mention the pandemic, but over the last two years, I think um, there's there's uh, I think disabled people uh were have been uh, uh we've all been through so much but i think for disabled people and then by extension disabled artists there was a real risk around uh, losing visibility um and opportunity given uh, what happens with the going back to quote normality and the speed at which that happens and can happen for for different individuals and i and i remember being um in a meeting with the the um, with the we shall not be removed movement here in the UK, and there were real discussions around what organisations and, and and venues were doing to support uh, disabled artists. Were they considering what it meant for disabled audiences to come back? Um, and some really were, and some really weren't. Um, and the, the, they developed um, uh, the seven inclusive principles um, that a lot of venues and organizations um, sort of uh, embraced or, or took up, but the, with the idea that it, it wasn't just about goodwill, but actually, if you, you know, if you agree to them, then 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 it's it's going to be a process of holding you to account and i and i think it speaks to also you know for a lot of uh, national portfolio organizations again in, in the uk there's a lot of furious mpo writing going on right now around uh, edi uh, plans and and again i really think there is a arts council and other cultural bodies and arts organizations we have a real 
responsibility to and, and not in a not in a in a negative way but to to hold each other to account of actually what it means to to uh be more inclusive because uh, actually i think good intention now is is not good enough uh it's actually what are you doing about that um and i think uh, also there is a there is a real negative connotation to uh for in some cases to um it, it can be referred to as sort of calling each other out in a really negative sense but actually how can we hold each other to account in a in a in a, as supportive a way as possible to to say actually i really want to engage with you but currently the way you're operating makes that nigh on impossible um so, and actually these really frank conversations with like i i really want them to happen with with organizations to go are you interested in being inclusive genuinely like are you interested in being inclusive and actually i would love it if, if some of them had the guts to say you know what actually no because actually for those that aren't it's like okay we're actually going to stop wasting our time for now trying to convince you that you're the one we want to focus on and actually we'll focus on the partnerships that have got potential and real desire and drive to change and make change um yeah no here here and uh, that will definitely stay with me good intention is not not good enough and you mentioned about npo national uh, portfolio organizations and one of the investment principles for next round of funding is inclusivity and relevance dougie i'm sure there's lots of synergies here with what kimberly was saying and, and your approach as well yeah i think kimberly was being incredibly polite if i'm honest <laughs> I'll, I'll i mean i agree with every word you said particularly about the partnerships we i'm not but you know let's just i want to work with people who are actually interested in in, in what we do there is not enough work there is not enough inclusivity in music in the national portfolio of the large organizations fact and you know it needs it needs to be called i think arts council i think the new strategy i think is you know really really positive about it but there is not enough in the large you know the large funding music organizations the last time the arts council did um um creative case of diversity ratings there are 13 music organizations who get over a million pounds and only one of them was was rated strong um and uh, you know in dance it was seven out of seven theaters i think it was 10 out of 12 you know music was one out of 13 and you know the, there is more that needs to be done and i for me it is also i mean it's incredible what can do can do could do um you know, in music, there is there is not enough diversity on the stage, and there's not enough move to get that diversity on on the stage. And particularly, we're talking about disabled artists. Um, every member of BSO Resound, pretty well every member of BSO Resound, um, was told in music college they wouldn't make it as a professional musician because of their disability. That's a fact. And when, this is in the twenty first century. Um, we did a concert the other day with BSO Resound and we had four members of the National Open Youth Orchestra uh, in the audience. And honestly, they looked 
at members of BSR is unlike like sort of you know pop stars because for, wow. for them that that is their that's their aspiration there there aren't enough progression pathways for young musicians to come through because there's no there's not the level of aspiration for what they want to do i think dance is better i think there's more in theater in music there is not enough so if you are a young disabled musician at the age of 13 14 15 16 who do you look who do you look to you know and there's some great examples power orchestra fantastic you know what's going on in newcastle with rns moves business but there's you know the the limited number of examples and i that's kimberly's point about you know partnership who's who you know who is interested it's not about the money it's about decisions it's about the decisions that you make um you know i'm not saying we get everything right of course we don't but there needs there needs to be more actual action so that therefore people coming through people playing music at a younger age have some aspiration to go you know as a when i was 10 13 14 i was playing the french or national youth there were loads of people i looked up that i wanted to be like we need to provide those role models and then and then also address the fact that the gatekeepers in the middle the teachers the people who have the influence the people who have the ability to give someone their first first gig are being inclusive in their decision making because they're the, they're the gatekeepers um and it's not a matter of what diversity that person has it's about their decision making and, and and you know we need to call out when that decision making is wrong um and as you can hear you know i feel really i feel really passionately about it that that music has you know there's some great things but we've got a, we have a long way to go Well, absolutely. And, you know, passion, we love passion. That's all good. Um, it's interesting. I mean, well, firstly, it's great that you you guys, Kimberly and, and Dougie, are providing this platform for, for role models and to, um, for the National Open Youth Orchestra, for example, having that aspiration and giving them that aspiration there and these role models. Um, and this also links, you're both touching a little bit about pathways into the profession, both on and off the stage. Um, Kira, I just wondered if you'd be willing to share your, your experiences in, in that regard and um, how easy you found it, both as a performer but also an administrator. I mean, you look quite despondent when you when Dougie was talking about the experience of the, of the musicians who said they'll never make it as a professional musician. Oh, uh, well, I guess that was one of those moments I should have, <clears throat> you know, been wishing that maybe my camera was turned off. Um, but, you know, I part of my despondence a little bit about it is that you know, I have definitely had my my fair share of uh, experiences, but thankfully it's it's long in the past. But when I was still, you know, in in school and then you know applying to to university um, and and kind of going for these important opportunities that, particularly when I was on the precipice of trying to get into a college, uh, you know, needing to sort of achieve certain milestones to help myself stand out. Um, I had just particular individuals that I've, uh, you know, been connected with in the past that saw me a certain way. And then, you know, I would reach a certain point uh, where um, my own vision impairment kind of became more of a hurdle. And this is before iPhones were really prevalent, before we had so much text to speech, before there was dictation, before Zoom, before any of this. And, you know, there were a lot of uh, moments where, you know, I'm kind of stuck just uh, recording things via cassette tape and, um, and doing things sort of in a very 
almost digital, but not quite their uh, method. And there would be people that were kind of in a position either to help teach or to help advance or to make like we've been talking about key decisions. And I think the juncture looking back on those moments now, uh, if I were them would be okay, here is a new situation. Here is a new uh, juncture I'm at where there's a challenge and how do I meet that? And how do I meet this person where they are? And instead of saying, okay, it's a little scary, but we're both gonna work through it and we're gonna work through it together. And there's gonna be a positive outcome. There would be, again, this hesitancy and in, in some cases with certain individuals, um, you know, just, kind of an almost defensive reaction, which, you know, I don't, I don't hold against, against those people or against others who might have a similar reaction. I think it's, it's somewhat human nature when you don't understand something to have maybe a slightly negative reaction to it. And, um, you know, at the time being younger, it, it was painful, but, uh, you know, I, I consider myself grateful that I've, been able to sort of weather through those things and then look back on them now as like how can people that I might encounter in the future see you know those those uh stop gaps and maybe see those moments of hesitancy and not meet them with frustration and just to kind of backpedal a little bit to where we were talking about uh experiences and and how people you know, can can be met with action rather than just intention. I absolutely agree with that. And I think in terms of choosing who you're going to work with, who you are going to create art with, who you're going to help elevate, um, I don't even think it's so much that people need to announce, I'm not interested in being inclusive so much as it's, there's a personal threshold. If, if somebody says, I'm going to get to it, I'm going to get to it, I'm going to get to it, and it's been a year, five years, 10 years, and it's just not happening. I, you know, it's, it's, you know, when people show you who they are, you know, believe them. And if the inaction is continuing or the, in, or the indifference is unchanging, that speaks for itself. And I think people who, for whatever reason, if they're not willing to move themselves mentally or logistically to make changes, that eventually they sort of set that set themselves apart from the more uh, the more open and more motivated sector of the arts who like want to bring more people in and to uh, fold in more experiences. Well, certainly, and it's um, well. Firstly, it's a testament to your resilience um, that, and so it's amazing what you've achieved in your career despite these setbacks. Some other individuals. Um, and that you're helping others work through this as well. Um, but I think that soundbite is probably as, as of action, not just intention, probably summarizes a lot of what we've been talking about today. Um, but I want to just come back a little bit to, as we come towards the end of just perhaps celebrating some pathways to the profession or things we can highlight for people who are listening um, to the podcast, be it as perhaps um, a disabled artist or arts administrator looking for ways to get into the profession, what support they can have, and, but also in turn to inspire arts institutions and cultural leaders to, to look at these various programs and say, actually, this is something we could either support or 
um, do ourselves. Are there any examples we'd like to share? I mean, I know, Dougie, I'm going to come to you first because um, with your Change Makers program as well, it's been particularly successful. Are there any, that aside, well, that's on that side, are there any others you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, we did an independent evaluation on our change makers, which was our, a two-year program of uh, training and mentoring with um, uh, conductor James Rose and the formation of BSA Resound. And we were, you know, we set ourselves open for, in, for you know, external evaluation and, and reflection back to us. And I think that made, that brought us to what we called our program for cultural change. So for me, it's about cultural change that will lead to, to the change we look. So I would encourage anyone um, to do that. Uh, clearly, you know, things like Parochia, National Open Youth Yorkshire, BSA and Moose, as I've said, you know, great examples, look them up watch them play watch them play it's amazing what they just amazing what they do in our in our music um certainly from our perspective in music and you know in terms of arts institutions you know and every leader of the social uh, every leader of an arts organization should know what the social model of disability is and if you haven't looked up it up look it up and you'll find it's been around for a long time and then question yourself what are the barriers that you're putting in the way even if you don't mean to what barriers are you and be honest with yourself what barriers are the that, that you are putting in the way um and uh and then other things like there's um there's a great sort of discussion reflection um program run by music masters called i'm in which is you know it's a very good way to embrace get all of your team involved in you know answering some difficult questions you know we've got a we've got a group of um diversity champions across all departments not just the orchestra but not just the ministry across the whole company you know we meet together to actually address some of the, some of these issues you know talk to your staff your staff may actually tell you things that you you know that you didn't want to hear uh, or that you do want to hear you know and be and be brave enough um to do that because actually it's your responsibility particularly for those of us who are receiving public money um you know we as uh, as kimberly so eloquently said uh, you know earlier about the lots of frantic npo writing going on at the moment um so you know look, look at those the, all, all of the tools are out there all of the examples in dance theater so inspiring um and and look at your you know look at your own processes i'll i'll just finish with one final thing um, in a lot of orchestras for example in in america particularly but also in in the uk they do screened auditions, which are where you do auditions and you put a big screen up so that the panel can't see the auditionee and you put carpet down so you can't tell whether they're wearing high heels or low heels or whatever as a way. And it's, it's seen as a model to show that you don't have, um, you know, you're not putting prejudice into your, in, you know, not what you see is what you hear. I remember pointing out to someone who runs a large American orchestra, yes, okay, but what about a member of my disabled-led ensemble who can play all the orchestral excerpts you might ask her to use? But if you put a screen in the way, she can't lip-read you when you say which excerpt she wants to do. Therefore, she has to identify as, as having a hearing impairment. So, you know, by putting, by something that you do, you're actually excluding other people from your, uh, from your thing, although you're standing up and saying you're doing great stuff. So, question yourself as what barriers you put in the way and then see what you're going to do to do about it and don't worry if you can't change it immediately it's about you know it's little steps but continual steps will make that larger change Kira, go for it thank so you so i just i i found that example to be uh just 
very enlightening. And I, I just wanted to add on to it that, uh, you know, it, it, it's certainly something where you could be trying to solve one problem or, or one, one shortcoming and in, in doing so kind of creating a second one. And uh, I, uh, again, kind of speaking from my own experience um, can definitely relate to that because, and I think this kind of goes with where I'm coming from. Uh, I think that where I see the biggest difference in a lot of the great things we've been talking about is that um, from where I've stood and how I've experienced uh, kind of my relationship with the arts in here in the US is that A, I kind of feel that the view of how the arts are perceived just as a medium uh, in the overall cultural landscape varies, I think somewhat from the UK and how it's valued in, in education, in schooling, in public life. And I think that just by itself as a founding um, starting point uh, can affect everything that comes after it. Because if art as a medium is less valued, then how can you expect people to uh, tackle anything that might be a shortcoming within the sector of, of, of the arts? And to just, when you, know, when you finally do find someone or find an organization that is willing to sort of look at themselves in the mirror and say, where are we sort of falling short or what, what things do we have to detangle? Um, I definitely think that it's good to have that mindset, uh, Dougie, like you were saying, you know, if, if you can't change things right away, that as long as you're willing, as long as there's, again, action and continuous, uh, you know, improvements, I think that's what matters. But I think for me, what I have viewed is that people need to really value art as a concept before they can even be willing to sort of tackle making it uh, a fully inclusive space and sort of realizing that um, state of being to its full potential. And, uh, you know, I think when people are afraid to sort of, for lack of a better phrase, out themselves, like where they, you know, they're trying to be seen for their talents, for what they make as an artist. And then there's a barrier maybe where the choice is either to try and remove bias or to have to say, oh, I'm disabled and I'm hoping once you know that, that you're not going to change how you view me or view the art that I make, that if there's that hesitancy and that uh, fear um, in trying to break into an arts organization or trying to put your art out there, that that needs to be addressed before you even get to, you know, heads of organizations deciding what to do with policy. So again, I think it's about mindset. And just from my own experience, uh, I think that's still a big hurdle. And it's kind of like, you can't treat it as a linear problem. You can't say, well, we'll, we'll get to the policies once we deal with this other thing, because I think mindset is very hard to change. And uh, you kind of have to work those two things concurrently. So you have to work on changing people's views of the world while also changing what you actually do in your organizations. And so that's kind of where I've experienced things. And I think the more that we're able to do those things concurrently, and it sounds like in the UK, there's a lot of great initiatives that are sort of tackling both. Uh, I think the better off the industry will be as a whole. Yeah, I'm sure we can all resonate with that. And, and um the broader power 
that culture has to influence these discussions. Um, and both of you were also talking about that bravery, looking at yourselves. And I mean, the bravery, for example, of BSO for having that independent audit. I mean, and also the internal discussions, House and Paris similarly have done that Music Masters I'm in um, initiative. And it's, it was very revealing. And we had very transparent conversations. I'd highly recommend other organizations to go through that process. Um, Kimberly, I'm going to, you started us off. I'm going to come to you to finish us off. No pressure. Um, so just, yeah, coming back to the original question of, um, pathways to the profession to celebrate, but also advice for arts institutions. So uh, hopefully a, a positive takeaway as well so pe that people can enact. So I think uh, my big one is for uh, the, those in the sector that either want to learn more um, or, or to become more inclusive in their approach is to be brave enough to have those conversations with those that are doing it already. Um, whether, and that can be cross arts. That doesn't have to be that dance stays within dance, theater stays within theater, music stays within music. Because actually I think there's learning to be done cross sector. I think we can learn from each other in terms of what we're all doing. I think um, within the dance sector, what, what is becoming more uh, uh, more, uh, I'm going to say in inverted commas, more accepted now is this idea of bespoke training pathways. So the idea that actually traditional training routes are not going to work for everybody. Um, it didn't work for me personally. Um, and so this idea of actually you can create your own way into the profession but what this then requires is it requires, um, it number one, it puts a lot of onus on the individual. And therefore, for those of us that are working inclusively, it feels like there is a real responsibility to put ourselves out there as organizations, as inclusive practitioners who are working to sort of uh, show what we're doing to try and because there are gatekeepers, there are, and there are questions around reach and who are we not reaching? And I'm really, really aware of that. And that is a constant um, area of work is like, where are we putting ourselves? Who are we not reaching? And I think because so often they, and it's the same for, for me also as a, as a young disabled dancer, if I hadn't have met Kanduko at the age of twelve, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't become a doctor. I wouldn't be doing the job I am now. So it relies on that first experience, and I think just to remember how crucial that is, whatever area of the arts, and just for those uh, um, companies, organisations that are doing it, to just acknowledge that importance and to push for that reach even more and because you will play a part hopefully in guiding and supporting those individuals and it might be within your own organization so within Kanduko we have um, for example uh, a learning department that we work that I work in that we are constantly offering programs and opportunities and, and uh, whether that be for uh, young dancers or artist development but also knowing 
about signposting and knowing what else is going on in your sector because we can't do everything and also we might not be what somebody's looking for but maybe mind the gap in Bradford are or maybe it's a, it's um it's another company maybe you know we have links with national youth dance company so maybe they'd also be excited about that um so it's it's not just about us it's about where we can support them in going Kimberly many thanks for that and um amongst many takeaways that cross arts discipline learning as something which certainly I'll be taking away from from this discussion amongst many other things but um many thanks again for joining us Kimberly, Kira and Dougie thank you also to Holly Gedge, Fiona Livingston and our sound editor Merlin Thomas our theme music is composed by Robert Cochran we hope you've enjoyed this podcast if you haven't done so already be sure to check out all the other episodes from the Culture Bar with topics ranging from race and the civic responsibility of the arts to how the arts can respond to the climate emergency. Or if you want something a bit lighter touch, we have a wonderful speed pod series with contributors from the likes of Poland, Switzerland, and even Wales. To get all that and more, please subscribe. See you soon.